Reimagining Time is a podcast that shares the stories and ideas of educators who are changing the way they use time to meet student needs. It's impossible for one teacher to try to meet the needs of every single child. But we, as a team, as a school, if we use that, the answers in the room or the room is the answer mentality, then we can, we can do that. This is part two of the episode, Who Are the Gifted Students? featuring Brian Butler. If you haven't listened to part one, go ahead and check that one out first. In this episode, Brian gets into the nitty gritty of how educators can shift their viewpoint and treatment of students. The idea is that all students are gifted, and it sounds like a beautiful thing, but we all know we can't just like an idea and expect everything around us to change. To make an idea come to life, we have to put in the work. And that's what this episode is about. Brian talks about the how, the five shifts a school can make so that gifted education becomes the floor of every classroom. More on that later. But it's mindset, it's knowledge, it's actions, it's learning and teaching, and it involves teamwork. How can a regular school make these shifts? Let's jump right into number one. Well, the first shift is um, that idea of building shared knowledge around the research. Uh, we have turned a blind eye to the research. We put our head in the sand around the, the latest research around the brain. And if, if teachers are going to be the, the people who change the brain, then it would make sense that we learn about the parts of the brain. We learn about the chemicals in the brain. We learn about how you know, cortisol is, is a chemical in the brain that actually shuts down learning. And if kids are coming from stressful situations or poverty, that that's going to shut down their learning. That's going to affect their memory. But most teachers have not actually taken any classes, have not really learned about the brain. As research around the area increases, there is even more to learn. As one example, Brian mentioned how cortisol affects the brain. Is there research about this topic? Consider one study from 2015 from the University of Rochester. While moderate levels of cortisol may actually be good for learning, levels that are too high or too low result in lower cognitive functioning. To quote an article that referenced this study, it found that specific forms of family adversity are linked to both elevated and low levels of cortisol in children. Children with either the elevated or low cortisol levels also had lower than average cognitive ability at age four. This is just one example relating to one chemical in the brain, but it's an example of how research can give evidence for the need to make shifts in how things are done. And so we're going to really make, make sure that we first build shared knowledge around what is the latest brain research? Who are those researchers out there that are saying that the brain does change? And so we, as a staff, again, we, we learned about Carol Dweck's work and Carol Ann Tomlinson's work about the brain and about and Eric Jensen's work. And so the first one is really building shared knowledge around the research because Anthony Muhammad and Louise Cruz in their wonderful book, Time for Change, say people resist change because they don't know why or they don't have the evidence to support changing. And so we're gonna make sure that we start with the why. Why should we change? What does the evidence say about the brain? So building this shared knowledge around the latest research about the brain is the first shift. The authors and researchers that Brian listed are a great place to start. Carol Dweck, who you may know because of her work on the growth mindset, Carol Ann Tomlinson, Eric Jensen, as well as educators and authors, Anthony Muhammad and Louise Cruz. And as they brought out in their book, Time for Change, most of us need a good reason to embrace change. Working with students, the stakes are high. 
So examining the evidence and ways things could be improved to benefit student learning is essential. And this is just the first shift. It's not enough as a staff to do research. The next shift involves words, how you use words to talk about your students. Shift two is that we're going to really purposely examine our language around these negative, really, these, these labels that um, otherize us. Um, they're marginalizing labels that we give to kids that we might not think about, but they truly lower our expectations. When we label somebody, a kid, low, or we label them slow, or we, we even say the word minority, as, as um, uh, Yvette Jackson says. Uh, she, she says that in our mind, we get a picture. And, and subconsciously or consciously, we start to lower expectations. People think in pictures, and we may not realize how the words we use influence our own thinking and the images our mind creates. This is one reason why changing the words we use is important. Yvette Jackson, the author and educator Brian mentioned, has more to say on this subject and suggests ways to use more positive language. When we, we call kids, we say, you know, these kids are kids from poverty. And, and she said, we need to change our language. So instead of saying kids from poverty, she, she said or suggests that we say, okay, what would be a more positive um, designa designation that doesn't put the onus on the kid? And she says, we should probably say something like uh, students who are school dependent. They depend on school, what others get from home. And so some of these negative labels truly do just, um, they just kill us. Uh, it, it just, it, it, it really, um, just over the years, I've just seen people just use these labels and we put people in a box, we put kids in a, in a box, we sort and select them, and then we track them, and then it's their destination. And so that is, you know, you know, negative labels be gone. I, I wrote a, a blog with Jeannie Spiller called Labels Be Gone, because we really have to start to watch our language. You can find this blog post, Labels Be Gone, on allthingsplc.info. You should also check out Season 2, Episode 6 of our podcast, Let's Remove the Labels. This episode features a conversation with Ken Williams, who speaks about the harm done by ability grouping and how schools can create equitable learning environments for all students. Brian draws a connection between words and our environment with a quote. The words we use become the house we live in. And so if we live, use all those negative labels, that's, that's the house that we've built in our schools. And so that's how we're going to treat kids. We don't, we don't do this on purpose, but we have to really consciously watch our, our, uh, our language. What kind of building do you want to work in? What kind of building do you want students to come to every day? When you think about the culture you want, look at the words you're using. In the book Starting a Movement by Ken Williams and Tom Hirk, there's a statement, labels often begin as identifiers of how people are incidentally different. Over time, however, labels begin to represent more than identification and support. Labels begin to damage those they identify and lower expectations. As Brian said, the key is to consciously watch the language used around achievement. The third shift that Brian mentions, as he describes, is probably the most difficult because it involves letting go of some control and recognizing that you can't do everything on your own. The third shift is 
And I think this shift is probably mo the most difficult because the other ones can be done individually. The third shift is this idea of collective teacher efficacy. This idea, and we talked about this before we started recording, this idea of getting rid of the one room schoolhouse mentality and treating these kids as our kids, not your kids and my kids, our kids. And how do we use our collective wisdom, our collective intelligence, our collective knowledge, skills, experience, expertise to make sure that we can get every single child? In a one-room schoolhouse, one teacher was responsible for all the students. Obviously, things are a little different now. For one thing, there are hundreds, even thousands of students in different schools. While each teacher is typically only assigned one group at a time, is it really reasonable to think that the teacher can meet the needs of every student in their group? Especially in a middle or high school setting where teachers are seeing students in a rotation every 40 minutes. But this is often the reality, and isolated teachers cannot build collective efficacy. Individually, teachers have so much to offer that they are truly effective when they can harness their combined expertise. It's impossible for one teacher to try to meet the needs of every single child. But we, as a team, as a school, if we use that, the, the answers in the room or the room is the answer mentality, then we can, we can do that. You know, John Hattie says collective teacher efficacy is like a 1.57 effect size. That's like improving student achievement, you know, three, four, five years in one year. If we, not I, if we take this approach to be able to do this. You, by yourself, probably have many good ideas, but likely not all the answers. But the answer is probably in the room, when you and other educators build on their ideas and the evidence they have available. It can be difficult to let go of the reins, but as Brian mentioned, the impact it can have on students far exceeds any of the challenges. The fourth shift focuses on students, how teachers can examine their own mindsets and help students build essential skills as well. The fourth shift is this idea of helping students develop powerful habits of mind. These are these like intellectual acts that when confronted with a challenge, students can pull these resources, these tools out of their toolkit in order for them to push through that challenge. Really, it's kind of like the growth mindset, but some of these habits of mind are like persisting, like um, managing impulsivity, um, like uh, questioning and posing problems or, and, and, and just really thinking through, how do I get through um, and persist and get through this challenge? Skills like persistence are crucial when it comes to getting through challenges, not just in school, but also in life. Teaching those habits of mind, they're not intuitive. A lot of these habits of mind are things that kids of means come to school with because their parents have modeled them, those parents have taught those to them, but many kids who don't have parents, and again, all parents want the best for their kids, so I'm not disparaging any parent, but some parents don't have the resources, the time to do that, and so when they come to school, if a kid comes up or is confronted with a challenge, then they don't have the, the wherewithal to persist and to get back up off the carpet and to bounce back and to manage when they're criticized and, and to figure out how to, to manage through that, that situation. And so I think it's really important for us to make sure that we're teaching these powerful habits of mind. Some people call them intellectual acts, but how do we use those in, in our, and put those in students' toolkits in order for them to be successful?
So now we've come to the last shift. The first was to build shared knowledge around the latest research about the brain. The second was to examine and change the language used around kids. The third was to build collective teacher efficacy. The fourth was helping students build powerful habits of mind. And then the fifth one is how do we give teachers, and this is what Yvette Jackson says, that all gifted programs have these kind of practices or these, these tools or these strategies, high operational practices, principles, or strategies. The fifth shift is about supporting teachers, encouraging them to build on the tools they have available. So many of the things done in gifted centers can be done in regular classrooms. And Brian goes on to describe what that could look like. So one, I talked about it earlier. Teachers need to start with strengths, right? They need to start with strengths. They need to, again, it sounds kind of like common sense, but build strong teacher relationships. These are things that happen in gifted centers. Um, we need to make sure that we are situating the learning in the lives of students. You know, do I truly know these students? You know, do I know their frame of reference? How are, you know, what are they bringing into the classroom that, that um, I should know about in order for me to understand their culture? And the culture is not race. Culture is their lived experience. And so these are practices that happen in gifted, quote, gifted land, as Yvette Jackson talks about, but they should happen everywhere. These practices from gifted centers clearly begin with mindset. And Brian mentions one mindset that is usually applied in the context of teaching students. Um, you know, again, developing that growth mindset is really um, something that I think um, is critical. And not just for students, but for teachers as well. Teachers have to develop a growth mindset. They have to believe that they can get better and improve. When we took that class, we had so many teachers who had a fixed mindset. And so I'm saying, if you have a fixed mindset as a person, how can you actually impart a growth mindset? A growth mindset means not getting stuck or complacent, but being willing to learn from mistakes and your capacity to change and improve. It's been a rough few years, and many might be feeling right now like they're trying to grow from a place that's lower than where they were before the pandemic. But moving forward is still growth. A growth mindset can help students and teachers, and so can social-emotional learning. Teaching social-emotional skills, that's critical as a part of, especially in our, our world after, during the pandemic and post, or, or during the endemic, but it's really important for us to make sure that we're talking about self-management, self-awareness, those, those social skills that, you know, students need to be taught. Again, these aren't in, intuitive. They have to be taught, modeled, and reinforced. There's another thing that gifted centers do that involves giving students more opportunities. And pro providing enrichment. When students are in gifted programs, they have so many opportunities to experience different things that really will try to nurture their gifts. And so providing enrichment is, is, is critically important. Um, and again, enrichment is any opportunity. It doesn't have to be certain specific, but any opportunities that um, students um, have to possibly nurture the gift. It could be through the arts. It could be through you know, athletics. It could be through you know, anything that will help them find you know, their, their strengths and their passion. Enrichment opportunities can be made a part of each school day. For students who may not have had the chance to find their gift, making enrichment time available to them gives them those opportunities. Brian also spoke about the importance of amplifying student voice and letting students own their learning so that educators become the partners or co-pilot 
but the student is the one driving. The last practice, setting goals. And the final thing is, is really um, incorporating what we call, and this was a game changer for me in our book, um, What About Us? Mm -hmm. uh, this is the book that I wrote with my co-author, Jackie Heller, Diane Kerr, and, um, and Tracy Hewlin. In our book, we talk about this idea of goal setting and, and helping students truly look at where they are and the space between where they are and where they want to go and then how do we get there. Yeah. Uh, and so people will say, well, some students are too young for goal setting. And we say, oh, contraire, my book is pre-K, K, one and two. And if we had kids um, goal setting at pre-K and K, then anybody can do that. And so those practices, actually, those practices are what happen in gifted programs. We're just saying, why can't we use those practices for everybody? What really is holding back any student from these practices? Gifted programs may have traditionally been exclusive, reserved only for students who are deemed high achievers. But if all students engage in those types of learning, they could reach their full potential. Here's an example. So then, then people will ask, okay, so you've done all this. So what does it look like when you give a traditional gifted curriculum or a gifted practice and you, you have these kids engaged in that? So let's take Socratic seminar. Socratic seminar is traditionally something that only kids who are labeled gifted or advanced get to take part in. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, an opportunity for students to discourse around a piece of literature. Uh, and so somebody will say, well, Brian, you know, I have these English learners. I have this, these special ed students. I have, quote, these students who are below grade level. Um, and you want me to have them engage in Socratic seminar? I'm, I'm like, absolutely. Well, how do we do that? And so how do we do that? Well, we don't do it in isolation. We do it as a team. So again, we talk about that idea of collective teacher efficacy, the idea that we want to use all the voices, all the expertise in the room to make sure that we can pull this off. Brian really highlights that collective teacher efficacy is the key. All of these shifts are important, but without that, it won't really bring the results you want. All five are critically important for this to, to pull this off. But I think the most important one, if we want to do this school-wide so we don't have an educational lottery, is number three, it's collective teacher efficacy. Because, again, an individual teacher can do four of those, and most of her kids in her class or his class will benefit. Yeah. Um, but what about the, 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 kid, the teacher who is not doing any of those in the same grade level, and I get assigned to that teacher? Mm -hmm. we have an educational lottery. It's yeah. a luck of the draw. And that is not fair. It's not moral and it's wrong. As you would imagine, Brian has a wealth of knowledge to share on this subject. In fact, he has a two-day workshop. And if, if people wanted to learn more about your workshop, where, where would they go on your website? They can just go to my website, brianbutler.info. Okay. brianbutler.info. Okay. And if they click on it, they can, you know, contact me through, through there. And, um, I have a one-day workshop, two-day workshop, virtual, on-site, um, but it really is mostly around, again, these five shifts and building shared knowledge and having people examine where they are yeah. in relationship to these shifts. And it's not a, you're doing this wrong um, and, and, you're not, and you're doing this right. It's, this is a journey. 
and we all have a starting place. And so where are we on that, that, that continuum and how do we continue to get better and better? It's always about continuous improvement. There's no, no end to this because until there's, until every single kid is making it and every single kid we are treating as if they are on our own kid and they're, they're, we're treating them as if they are gifted, then we're not there yet. It's important to remember that these shifts aren't a once and done practice. All students won't be automatically learning at high levels after the first pass of running through these steps. Educators are continually learning and growing in their confidence to help students and change their own thinking. And so we're always trying to, you know, put more tools in our toolkits in order for us to make sure that kids are, are benefiting from this, this philosophy of gifted education as the floor. Again, people think it's like a certain program or practice. No, it's our way of thinking and it's a way of doing. And then it's okay, our expectations and beliefs. And then we put tools in our toolkit. We become confident. And then we say we can tackle the world. So how does all of this relate to how schools use time? For one thing, the way schools use time says a lot about what they value. And using time in a way that puts students first often means giving students time for enrichment. As we discussed in part one of this episode, it's often an opportunity gap that determines a student's perceived giftedness. When students are regularly given time during the school day to learn different things, to try new things, find out what they are passionate about and what they are good at, they can find their gifts. In addition, teachers need time in order to learn and plan. It makes me think of one statement from Charles Williams, who was a principal that we had interviewed and he he mentioned how you know you're saying all these things these are your goals well what does your schedule reflect what do you what do you actually value when looking at how schools um use their time do you think there's shifts that they can make that really show that they believe that all kids learn well the first shift that you make is that um and it's disingenuous to say that you know we should take collective teacher efficacy and believe this and that we should you know work as a team when we don't have time to plan together. So the first thing is you need to make sure there's hundreds of schedules that out there in the world that help people think about how do we make this work in terms of planning together? Because a special ed teacher will say, well, I don't have time to plan. All right. So how do we use, you know, we are in this new world now. We, we use these last two years electronically, virtually to plan a lot. And so we can use a lot of tools. Everybody doesn't have to be in the same spot at the same time to plan together. And we also can use you know, a number of you know, ways to create documents where people can you know, plan asynchronously, right? And so there are a number of ways that we can plan together. At Enriching Students, we encourage schools to make time for students to have enrichment opportunities during the school day. As highlighted before, this can help them to find the things that they're passionate about. But as Brian mentions, teacher planning is essential. And while making the time for that may not be easy, all of the skills picked up these past couple of years can help educators be more flexible with how they work together. This kind of flexibility may mean more educators can be at the table, even if they aren't there physically. 
Brian stresses the importance of including teachers from multiple subject areas when discussing student needs so that they don't come away with a one-dimensional view of a student. We had our phys ed, art, and music teachers be a part of the planning, although they weren't in the sessions, right? And so when we start to plan and look at you know data and look at progress for students, we also want to make sure, again, I talked about this 360-degree view of children. If we don't have phys ed and art and music and we're in elementary school at the table, then we're missing a view because a, a yeah. student a student may be struggling in an area in math or literacy, but they may shine in art and music or phys ed. And if the classroom teacher doesn't know that, then they have this one view of a student. And so we have a document where the PE teacher, art teacher, music teacher will also, you know, you know, check in and, and share their, what, they see from students. They start with strengths. Where are the strengths of these students? Because we want to make sure we start with strengths. When you say the floor of every classroom, yes. when a student walks in, that's what you're looking at. What are their yes, strengths? We're, we're mm -hmm. looking at their strengths. Yeah. Because yeah. if the floor is my weaknesses, then that floor <laughs> looks like it's got holes in it and I'm going to fall through it. Nobody wants to be on that floor. Oh, nobody wants to be on that floor. <laughs> no. But that's what we do to kids. And, you know, and, and we know educators have the biggest hearts. But we, we have held on to a traditional system that was meant to sort and select kids. And so we just sometimes replicate that system and not even know it. And the last question that we have is about um, advice that you would give to schools if, if they were starting on this process, um, whether it's, you know, reimagining they're scheduled because they realize, okay, like we, we need to make some adjustments if we're going to have, have the time we need or, or just shifting their mindsets. If they're starting um, on that journey, is there a piece of advice that you would give to them? Always. And it's very simple, but it's sometimes not, not taken to heart. Always start by learning together, building, you know, that, that shared knowledge. So when we learn together and we sit down as a staff, as a team, and we have access to the same information. We have access to Carol Dweck's work or Eric Jensen's work or Yvette Jackson's work or Goldie Muhammad's work or Joseph Renduli's work, Renzuli's work, and we have access to that same information. Then once we do that, we're, we're more, more likely to come to the same conclusions. But we don't do that in education. We, we, we make decisions based on who's been there the longest or who's got the loudest voice or because we've always done it that way. And if we are a true profession, then what do professionals do? They look at the evidence, they, 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 they study the evidence together, and then they make a decision based on that evidence. So learn, as Rick DeForest says, learn together, build shared knowledge, engage in collective inquiry, just sit down and make sure that we're all on the same page in order for us to make sure that we can move forward as one voice and one team. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reimagining Time, and we especially want to thank the educators who have shared their time and hard work with us. This podcast is produced by Enriching Students, a software tool that's designed to help schools manage flex time. It's about time. Tune in for a new episode of Reimagining Time every two weeks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and more.